and help us to all seek to be greater stewards for thy sake. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And so we're finishing up our stewardship month. It's been our practice for many years to focus on stewardship in January, missions in February. And for some of us, this is not a new concept, stewardship. We've talked a lot about it. For some of you, it might be newer. But one of the jobs of a preacher is to bring people into remembrance, right? So imagine all the things that we know to do that we're just not doing. Or perhaps things that we forgot to do, or just in the busyness of life, things that ought to be towards the top of our focus and priority get kind of bumped down as the busyness of life just kind of shakes us. And you know, the the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Uh, And so uh, sometimes the squeaky wheel is distracting you from the things that really are the most important. And I believe the Bible doctrine of stewardship is a doctrine that affects so much of our lives because it really is one of those foundational things that help us in every area of life. It's Stewardship is an important concept for each Christian to learn, and it's a completely different system as to how we all grew up before we were saved and uh, how we operated before we were saved and then how the world operates today. So the world system functions by the concept of ownership. It's mine, so I'll do what I want. It's mine, so I'll do what I want. Stewardship is the opposite mindset. Stewardship says, I've been entrusted with what belongs to someone else, so I want to do what they would like. That's the concept of stewardship. Someone let me borrow a book, uh, and it's a, it's a really interesting book. And I almost didn't take it because I'm like, you know, I don't want to be responsible for it. It's a beautiful book. It's important to you. They're like, no, no, please take it. And so right now that book is being treated differently than all my other books. Why? It's not mine. If something happens to my books... It might hurt me, it might be frustrating, but it's mine. But I don't want something bad to happen to somebody else's book in my custody. Does that make sense to you? The Old Testament talks a lot about that. If you borrowed someone's tool and it broke when it was in your possession, you were responsible for it. If you borrowed someone's oxen and something happened to it while it was in your possession, you are responsible to... Uh, fix it or to buy it, it wasn't yours. The basic idea is things that aren't yours are cared for differently than things that are yours. Now, here's the problem. The world says everything in my life is mine. It's my life. It's my body. It's my future. It's my marriage. It's my children. I'll do what I want. But the Christian attitude should be the exact opposite. Everything I have has been given to me by God. And I ought to treat it as such because I'm going to give an account for it. You know, nobody's going to come to me and say, uh, why didn't you take care of your own stuff? Well, it's mine. But you know, one of these days we're going to all give an account before the Lord for how we lived. Do you know why? 
Because really it's not our life. We've been given a life that we're going to give an account for. Because truly it belongs to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not, what? Your own. You don't belong to you. When we got saved, God didn't just purchase our, our souls from hell. He purchased everything. And then it goes on to say, for your body and your spirit, which are God's. And so my body belongs to God. My spirit belongs to God. My soul belongs to God. My mind belongs to God. My heart belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And whenever you, you realize that, it changes your perspective. Now, some people will listen to this and be like, whoa, 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 that's not fair. That's not fair because this is mine. You know, oh, that's my money. I worked for it. Well, would you have a job if it weren't for God? Would you have hands to work if it weren't for God? Would you have a skill if it weren't for God? See, really, when you boil it down, everything we have comes from God, including our very existence. Why are you here? Why am I here? I didn't have to be here. And thankfully, we know the truth that we're all not some product of billions of years of accidents and beneficial mutations, and boy, the world's an accident, the universe an accident, you and I are accidents, there's no rhyme or reason, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. No, that's, that's not true. You are here because God wanted you to be. And at conception, God gave you life. He gave you an eternal soul, gave you an awareness of yourself, gave you a body with which to live. Folks, when we boil it down, everything belongs to God. And when you have the right perspective on that, it's not a bad thing. It's not a thing that makes you say, well, that's not fair or that's not right. No, it's a thing that makes you say, thank you. See, an attitude of stewardship actually brings gratitude. Because I don't, I don't deserve to be here. I didn't do anything to be here. My very life's a gift from God. My spouse is a gift from God. My children are a gift from God. My health is a gift from God. You don't think so? Ask somebody, ask somebody who's lost their health. They'll tell you how many years they took it for granted. But it's a wonderful gift. And so once we get this idea of stewardship down, this mindset of stewardship, we can begin to live the life that God created us to live. Now, one who lives by the principles of stewardship is called a steward. And so we read in our text here that Abram was concerned. God was telling him he was going to be a great nation and have many people, and he was going to be supremely blessed. But Abraham didn't understand because he didn't have any children. He didn't have anybody to give anything to. And he said in verse 2, Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Now sometimes, if you didn't have anybody to leave anything to, a faithful steward would get the inheritance. But what was a steward? A steward was simply someone who would take care of the business of, of the household. And so Abram was a great man. He had a great many things. He had uh, great herds and, and wealth and, and uh, 
responsibilities. But the steward ran the day-to-day functions of the household. He was responsible for those things. And this idea of stewardship is found all throughout the scriptures. We learn in, in Genesis 43, 19 that Joseph had a steward. The Bible says, And they came near the steward of Joseph's house and communed with him at the door of the house. In the New Testament, Herod Antipas had a steward, Luke 8, 3. And Joanna, the wife of Shusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. And so these people were believers even in the house of, of Herod. So a steward is one designated by a master to oversee family, household, or state matters. Responsibilities might include the palace, business affairs, city treasury. The steward might also be responsible for the entire household or for just a part of the household. So imagine, we we see this today, we don't use the word steward, but imagine a business owner, one who's ultimately responsible for the business, hires a manager or supervisor to take care of things in that department or on that shift. Now, the business doesn't belong to the supervisor or the manager, and that supervisor manager has to give an account to the one who really owns it, but they are held responsible. We see this in the airline industry. The pilot is responsible for everything that happens on that plane. And he can make judgment calls based on safety. Uh, He is ultimately in absolute control of that plane. But we have something called stewards and stewardesses because the pilot's too busy to get up and check on the passengers and get people water and, and give you your peanuts or your pretzels. So there is a steward taking care of a portion of the responsibilities. So we see this in our own lives. God's in charge of everything. He ultimately owns the world. He owns me. He owns my family. He owns everything I have. But he puts me in a place to where I am caring for his assets and his responsibilities in his absence. That doesn't mean he's, he, he has delegated full authority and ownership and control because we still give an account. Does that make sense to you? And so this idea of stewardship is vital. Stewardship is a position of great trust and responsibility. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. You got to be faithful. Would you want to hire a babysitter that you couldn't trust to keep your kids safe? No. You could say, moreover, it's required in a babysitter that they be found faithful. Would you want to hire a teacher to spend seven hours a day with your kids that you couldn't trust them to teach them the right thing? No. But you know, there's a lot of teachers right now that are more interested in turning children into woke activists than teaching them reading, writing, and arithmetic. That's why you see some of these parents getting involved being like, whoa, what are you teaching my kids? And the government's response is, well, you shouldn't, parents don't have a right to tell us what to teach your kids. You know why? Because some of them believe that your kids belong to the state. If you don't believe that, look up the quotes. By the way, that's what communism believes, that your children belong to the state. Moreover, they believe you belong to the state. 
because the state is the most important. You see, everywhere we look, faithfulness. Would you want to get in, the, in someone's cab or an Uber driver that, that has accidents all the time? You know, faithfulness is such a, a vital part of the way we function. Stewardship is built into every aspect of our life. And yet sometimes when it comes to God, we fail to see our responsibility to God as stewards. The steward must be faithful to the master's direction, to follow directions. I try to teach my children and, and, and uh, other young people, you know, if, if, if you want to have a job someday, if you want to be responsible and be trusted, then you need to learn to follow directions. Sometimes the boss will say, hey, just, just get this done and not give you any direction. He'll trust you to use your own wisdom and experience to just do it and get it done within the parameters. But if the boss or a parent says, do it this way or in this order, and you don't do it that way or in that order, how long are you going to keep that job? I've told the story before, but some of you will remember that I had a, a uh, business before I, uh, to get myself through Bible college, and I had employees at times, and at one point I was doing basically flooring, eventually became a, a licensed general contractor. I was doing mostly flooring at the time, and I had one helper, and his job was to do some of the prep work and stuff. He'd worked with me for quite a, a period of time. We were putting vinyl into a, a kitchen, and whenever you put vinyl in a kitchen, the glue's so strong and the vinyl is, is so thin that if there's any little thing, I mean, you get a speck of, of drywall, you get like a, 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 just a little piece of wood or just anything under there, you'll be able to step back and see that under the vinyl because it's just, it's got to be so precise. So what we would do is go in and you'd have to clean the floor thoroughly. And then you put in a layer of quarter inch subfloor, just almost like just a brand new floor, just a quarter inch six, thick. So you're starting with just beautiful, smooth wood. And then you had to staple that four inches at the seams, four inches apart and eight inches in the center in a grid. It had to be just right, certain staples, certain stapler set to a certain depth. And then you would patch those seams so that it was just a perfectly flat surface. Then you'd sweep it again and sweep it again, and then you'd glue it with a fine trowel, lay that stuff out, roll it, and when you're done, it's a beautiful new floor. Now, vinyl can go up at the time. A good quality vinyl was $50 a yard. And so you can put a lot of money in a kitchen for a nice floor. This guy had worked with me for a couple years. He was a pretty good guy. He basically did what I told him to do. But on this day, for some reason, he thought he knew better. And he went in there and I said, put this in. I'm going to go out to the, the car and make some phone calls and, and get, get some of my other business lined up for the rest of the week and next week. And so he knew how to put down the subfloor. He knew how to staple it. <clears throat> he knew how to patch the seams. So I came in there, glued it, rolled it, looked beautiful. We left. Well, next day I get a phone call from the flooring store that we were working out of at the time. This customer's irate. What happened? This customer's irate. You can see every seam of subfloor. I said, no. We went back over there, drove all the way back there, and as soon as I walk in, I knew what happened. 
you could see every 4 by 8 sheet under the vinyl. Because you not only had to do the right amount of staples at the seams, you had to staple them within an inch of the edge of the piece of subfloor. Now, he knew that. He just decided it wasn't really necessary. And out of all the times he'd had me do it, it never, I'd had him do it, it had never been a problem. So what he decided to do was he decided to save staples. So he saved me a $35 box of staples and cost me $800. Because what he did is he just glued, he just stapled too far away from the edges, just an inch, and he didn't put in enough staples. What happened is that glue is so strong, it'll actually peak every one of those seams of subfloor. And you walk in, beautiful floor, and you can see sheets of plywood underneath it. Do you think I was happy? No. But here's the problem. It wasn't his job. It wasn't his client. He didn't have to pay the $800. But he wasn't faithful in what I told him to do. Does that make sense? The truth is, because I was a kind boss, I not only paid him to do it wrong, I didn't pay him again. <laughs> I said, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna pull this up. Well, if you've ever tried to pull up quarter-inch subfloor with inch-and-a-half staples in it and glue, it's a mess. I didn't pay him again to do it to clean it up. But I did keep him on the job. And I said, you know better. What, what were you thinking? Well, I just didn't think it mattered. You know, there's a lot of things that God tells us to do that we may not understand why it matters. We may think that we can skimp a little bit here and skimp a little bit there and change something here or there. But the, the boss knows the big picture. The owner knows the big picture. And the steward is faithful to the master's direction. When the Bible gives us a clear command, it's not us to decide how much of that we want to do or don't want to do. It's our responsibility to be faithful. Amen? But what about this? We should be faithful to the master's desires. What if the boss doesn't tell you exactly the way to do it, but you know how he wants it done? This is where we get into the idea of pleasing the Lord. It's one thing to obey the Lord. But what about pleasing the Lord? I, I not only want to do the least amount, I want to do what God wants. I want to make God happy. I want to have God look at my work, at my responsibilities, at my life, and be like, wow, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we need to follow the Lord's principles, His precepts, that's the commandments, His principles. You know, the Bible is too small for God to say, Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, or thou shalt, on everything that humanity would ever think up. So God made a book of principles that we can apply to any situation in any generation. 
But then what about this? What about the Lord's preferences? Do you know the Bible says some things are lawful, but they're not expedient? They're, they're not sinful, but they're not wise. And a, a faithful steward should be like, I not only want to do the things that are, that are lawful, I want to do those things that are expedient. Maybe I could get away with doing it like this, but the Lord would prefer it done like this. I want to please the Lord. I want to do the best. Jesus said, if a man asks you to walk a mile, walk with him. Yeah, twain, two. A soldier could walk up to any, any Jew and say, carry my stuff for a mile. And they would have to stop whatever they were doing, get the Roman soldier's stuff and carry it for a mile. But they were very persnickety about it. They would, they would do it for just a mile. And Jesus said, why not do a little extra? And this is the idea of pleasing the Lord, uh, a faithful steward. Now, let me give you a couple thoughts here, and we'll go to the house. Number one, faithful stewards manage the possessions God entrusts to them. This is the mindset of stewardship. A faithful steward, faithful stewards manage the possessions God entrusts to them. Look at Genesis chapter 39. So we're all stewards whether we realize it or not because we're going to give an account. And the Bible teaches us some areas here about the mindset of stewardship. Genesis chapter 39 verses 1 through 6, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him off the hands of the Ishmaelites, which he had bought him down thither. So Joseph was bought as a slave by Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard and also oversaw the prison. Verse 2, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. Think about that, prosperous in prison. You know, you can be prosperous anywhere in any situation if, if the Lord's with you. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord had made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. And he, Potiphar, made him Joseph overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from that time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he, Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's hand. He knew... Uh, not aught he had save the bread which he did eat, and Joseph was a goodly person and well-fared. So Joseph was such a trusted steward, such a trusted servant, that Potiphar trusted him with everything, and he didn't even know what he had anymore. He didn't know the balance in his checkbook. He didn't know his, his uh, finances. He, he just trusted Joseph. Absolute trust. So stewards can be trusted to manage the possessions that God entrusts to them. I read a story some years ago. It was a, what would be considered an A-list actor who had gone broke. And they had just done a, a film where they had gotten almost $20 million for that film. And they were in the habit of getting 15 to $20 million per film, and they were 
pretty popular. And so we're talking over $100 million, and now all of a sudden the guy's broke. And come to find out, the problem was twofold. Number one, he was living a very lavish lifestyle, had multiple homes, was spending something like $100,000 a month on just help for this and that, had multiple homes, uh, was, was very foolish with his money. But the second thing was the person that had been entrusted to oversee his money didn't do a good job. A matter of fact, they made accusations that he was stealing from him. Well, it's a hard thing when you trust somebody to take care of your possessions and they're gone. Imagine having made over $100 million and now you're broke. How does that even happen? Oh, it happens to professional athletes all the time. They make tons of money and then all of a sudden they're broke because they were foolish with their money or they trusted people to take care of their possessions. What about Bernie Madoff? Anybody remember him? Billions and billions of dollars people trusted him with. Come to find out it was all just a Ponzi scheme, making it look like that he was making people money when he wasn't. And so we don't want to be those kind of people. God has given us possessions, and we want to make sure that we are caring for the possessions that God has given to us. We should take care of our homes, our vehicles, our properties, our possessions. We treat them with respect. We clean them. We give them maintenance and upkeep. We give thanks for them. We, we see how we can use those things for the benefit of God's work. Number two, faithful managers or faithful stewards manage the people God entrusts to them. The people God entrusts to them. Here in the story, if you read on, Potiphar's wife was sinfully attracted to Joseph. Many times she tried to seduce him, tried to get him to commit adultery with her. And the sad fact is, most men in this world have about as much character in the bedroom as whatever female they are pursuing at the time. But here's a man that said, I'm going to be faithful to God morally. Even whenever someone's chasing me down, begging me, the answer's no. Why? Because God's watching. But if you go a little bit deeper... Potiphar had trusted Joseph with his wife. They were in a house alone together. He never had a thought of, you're going to take advantage of my wife. Matter of fact, he started working it out not to be in the house alone with her because she would take those opportunities to try to get him to do wrong. But one day he was busy, kind of missed it. They're in the house alone. She was so frustrated, grabbed his, his coat. She was so frustrated that he wouldn't sin with her that she began to yell that he had abused her. Potiphar was so angry, so upset. But Joseph said, I'm not going to mistreat the people you've entrusted me with. I would, never, I would never sin against you, against God. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about how we are to treat the people God entrusts to us. Colossians chapters 3 and 4 give instructions for a lot of relationships. 
Think about the parents. As our parents get older and children grow up, God has given children the responsibility to care for their parents. And I know some of you have worked hard to do that at great personal sacrifice. And I'm really praying that Rob and Angie take care of Mom and Dad and Esbitt whenever they get old. I mean, somebody's got to step up and uh, take care of that. Yo, yeah, but we, we are responsible to care for our parents. Parents are responsible when the kids are young to take care of the children. But wait a minute, those aren't our kids to do with what we want. They're God's. We have a responsibility to our siblings. We have a responsibility to our spouse, our friends, our pastor, our church family, our our employers, or our employees. The list goes on and on. So faithful stewards manage the possessions God entrusts to them. Faithful stewards manage the people God entrusts to them. Faithful stewards manage the problems that God entrusts to them. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> Verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. So here's an important truth. If God trusted you with a trial, then you're able to overcome it. How many times do we face things and it's like, I can't do this. I can't handle this. I can't get through this. It's too much. But no, the wonderful truth is if God has entrusted you with a trial or a temptation, it's because He knows you can handle it. Years ago, I received a letter from an aged preacher. After spending the week with our church, he sent a letter of gratitude, as they often do. And after he said some kind things about our church, he made a statement that took me by surprise. He said, God must trust you and your wife tremendously to give you such a heavy trial. God must trust you and your wife tremendously. And he went on to speak about it a little bit. He didn't realize how sick Sarah was until he actually got here, like most people. It's one thing to hear, oh, she's sick and things, but whenever you realize the depth and breadth of it, it's shocking. And his wife also had had a lifetime of severe suffering. Over 30 surgeries, she had a bone disease where her bones would degenerate. Her bones would just break randomly. Uh, Spent a life of severe suffering. But it caught me off guard what he said, and I began to think about it and meditate upon it. It's a truth I knew, but one I'd never really applied to our situation. But some of you are going through some heavy stuff. I mean, you're going through some difficulties. You have challenges that are difficult. But God has given you those trials because He knows you can do it. And if you will lean on Him and seek Him, He will empower you to overcome it. And in that trial, you become a platform to show the people around you how good God is. 
and God brings glory to himself. But we, a good steward manages the problems God entrusts to him. 1 Peter 5.10 says, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. God uses problems in our lives to make us more like Jesus and to bring glory to himself. Let me say number four, faithful stewards manage the potential God entrusts to him. Well, faithful stewards manage the possessions, the people, the problems, and the potential. You know, God created each one of you with extreme potential. And oftentimes we don't see our own potential. We're good at seeing the potential in our children. Sometimes we're good at seeing the potential in others. But you know every one of you, regardless of your age, your stage in life, where you've been, what you've done, I'm talking right now, you have far more potential than you know. Who would have thought many, a hundred years ago, that included in the, the small atom was the potential for the nuclear bomb. And we are not good at estimating our own potential. Each one of you have a mix of gifts and talents and personality and experiences that God can use like a supernatural spiritual nuclear bomb in somebody's life to bring change, to bring salvation, to change things for God's sake and for His glory. And yet all too often we feel like failures. We feel like there's not much we can do. We feel like we're hindered. That somebody else can do that. Somebody else can take care of that. But we miss our own potential. And the truth is, it doesn't matter how much potential you have compared to somebody else because God's only going to judge me for my potential. And He's only going to judge you for your potential. But we all have the opportunity to hear well done. Look at John 14, 12 as we finish. John 14, 12. (coughs) Gospel of John, chapter 14. A tremendous verse. Well, look at verse 8. Let's look at a few verses. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Lord, we know you're the one, but show show us the Father. Verse 7, if ye had known me, ye should have known that my Father... (laughs) Excuse me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Verse 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the father. It suffices this. Verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have you I been so long with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the father. And how sayest thou then, show us the father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Now here we all have doubts, don't we? Here Thomas just doubted, Lord, how how do we know how to get where you're going? Then Philip said, well, we... We know who you are, but show us the Father, and then then we'll be okay. And the Lord's like, how long have I been with you? Don't you know me? 
And he gets a little bit frustrated and begins to teach him here this great truth. And he said, if you don't believe for me, believe for the very works sake. Now imagine the works they'd seen. The blind healed. The deaf to hear. The mute to speak. The dead raised again. The lame to walk. Devils cast out. Calling him Lord. They'd seen a lot of marvelous works. Crowds following. Feeding of 5,000 men. Probably more like a crowd of 15,000 people fed with five loaves and two fishes. Imagine the works that they'd seen. But then look at the next verse. Verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me... The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Imagine that. Lord said, Philip, you've seen some amazing things, but you have no idea the potential of people that believe in me. You have no idea the potential you have. You're going to do greater works. Let me ask you a simple question. What's greater, helping a man to walk or helping a man get all his sins forgiven so he can go to heaven for eternity? <coughs> Folks, I know that we would love to see the dead raised and we would love to do all that, but can you realize that the greatest miracle in the history of the planet is that someone can put simple faith in Jesus Christ and have their sins washed away? That's the greatest miracle that's ever been done. But because we can't see it with our physical eyeball, we underestimate its power and its glory. And Jesus said, you're going to do greater works than me. He said, I'm going to my Father, but I'm going to leave you here on earth. Don't underestimate what you can do for God. And a a faithful steward says, I realize I've been given some potential. Maybe it's a lot, maybe it's a little. But I'm just going to give it back to God and use whatever He's given me for His sake. We have talents. We have spiritual gifts. We have opportunities that make up our potential. We should give it all back to God. So here's a simple truth. Stewardship says, this belongs to God, so I'm going to take care of it the way He wants, and I'm going to give an account for it. Ownership says, it's mine, I'll do what I want. By the way, people that believe that are still going to stand before God. But usually that's going to be at the great white throne judgment. But for you and I, let's say, I want to be a faithful steward. How do I do that? I want to manage the possessions, God trust me. I want to manage the people God trusts me with the way He wants me to. I want to manage the problems God entrusts to me the way He wants me to. And I want to manage my potential that He entrusts me with the way He wants me to. Let's pray. Father, help us all to just really get anchored to this concept of stewardship. It truly is a life-changing thought. And for some, it's one that we've talked about often, but one that's hard to put in practice. 
And for others who are new to our ministry, this might be a, a revolutionary thought. Maybe they understood the concept like they never have before. But yet, Lord, you've given us such gifts. Help us not to pretend like they're our own, but to realize they're all wonderful gifts from a very generous God. We're going to give an account to you someday. Help us to do it with joy and not with sorrow as we strive to please you in all things, following your direction following your desires, seeking to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful.